What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I was thunderstruck in your speech and what your World Economic Outlook says about a five-year vision of the International Monetary Fund of growth from 3.8% down to 3%, a 21% decline Mm. in the five-year vision. Are you modeling global recession and, dare I say, global recession for five years? What we're modeling is a period of slow growth uh, that is being held back by a number of factors. One is not so dramatic. Some of the fast-growing economies like China or South Korea are growing fast no more. Mm -hmm. But you would expect that there would be others to pick up the torch of strong growth. And this is not happening. What is holding growth back are three groups of factors. First, low productivity. We have been struggling with this phenomenon before the pandemic, Mm -hmm. and we continue to struggle with it. Second, it is fragmentation. The fact that the world economy does not enjoy the same impetus that comes from more trade, oh, you understand more it. We're, we're going to spend this entire interview on trade fragmentation. <laughs> Give me the third point right now. Uh, and the third <clears throat> point is that countries that we would expect to add to growth, mm-hmm. uh, frontier markets, low-income countries, right. are in particularly difficult place because they have been innocent bystanders of repetitive shocks, the COVID, uh, Russia's invasion, uh, the fact that the world economy as a whole is now less able to support the weakest members. Why? The peace dividend is gone. Well, the peace, and we're through COVID, and it is a celebration of these meetings as we come beyond COVID, the assistance of you and other institutions in getting us beyond this pandemic. But you end your speech talking about the ropes that tie us together. The ropes between Washington and Beijing are frayed as you and I haven't seen from our youth. How does the IMF tie the ropes between Beijing and Washington back together? Where we see an opportunity to do better is to identify very practically areas where cooperation is a must. Climate change cannot be fought by individual countries. The criticality of adjusting to more supply security at the lowest possible cost. Uh, engaging on securing areas of the world that have become more fragile. It is in everybody's interest that we do not have more civil wars, more conflicts. Right, but in everybody's interest, in the tone here, and particularly in the Economist article of two or three days ago, is China doesn't want to participate. Now, you spoke in your comments in your speech of the new practicality of the premier of China. Can you report that there's a new practicality out of Beijing to help us with those ropes to tie together? Uh, What I heard in in our bilateral meeting and also publicly from uh, Premier Li Chan are three important messages. First, China's commitment to continue to open its economy for um, private investors from all over the world. Second, China's commitment to play a constructive role in multilateral institutions, including Mm -hmm. the IMF. Mm -hmm. 
and third, China's commitment to support developing countries that are struggling with high debt levels. For many right. of them, China is the major, a major What's so, so important here, and this goes to our Anne-Marie Horton's conversation with the Speaker of the House last night in Los Angeles, but to take it away from the politics and go back to IMF 101, the Chinese don't want to participate in the normal and historic IMF restructuring process. They don't want to extend duration. They don't want to take a haircut and bring down the interest rate. They don't even want to write down some of the debts that they were directly or indirectly involved in. I spoke to our Matthew Hill in Mozambique on Zambia today. Can Chinese help you with the challenges of Zambia? What I am very mindful of is that China has been very slow to recognize that multilateral debt restructuring requires China to play by the rules that are already established. It is now the time for China to demonstrate that they are capable of playing by these rules. Uh, yes, we have had very slow process on debt restructuring on Chad, but we have completed it. Uh, we have now initiated a debt restructuring for Zambia, and I got the assurances from the Chinese premier that China would play its role they are the largest creditor to Zambia, for Zambia to move to a uh, more reliable path. Uh, the same applies to Sri Lanka, where China has taken a commitment uh, to play by the international <coughs> rules. The same applies to Ghana, to Ethiopia. We have created, together with the World Bank and India as G20 presidency, mm -hmm. a new global sovereign debt roundtable. China is participating. They're fully. part of that roundtable. They're, they're, they're part of it. They're participating fully and they're participating constructively. Where we need to continue to engage with China mm -hmm. is on how we can achieve the same result for countries in terms of shrinking that, that level that China can implement domestically given their own internal domestic constraints. Uh, direct haircut is the most straightforward uh, way. But we can achieve the same shrinking of debt through debt reprofiling. In other words, extending by many more years the time of service. Does China debt. agree to that traditional methodology? They are not. Well, they have agreed in the case of Chad. We are now working on having them uh, agreeing in the case of Zambia. But look, Proof of the pudding is where? Mm -hmm. It is in the eating. Uh, so I can say uh, we got uh, reassurances from the Chinese leadership that they would play constructively. Right. Now we need to eat the cake. Now we need to see China delivering on how, this. How urgent is it? And as you said in your speech, as you start these spring meetings, this difficult climb, how urgent is it for President Biden to meet with President Xi to begin the path of practicality and the path towards the huge tensions that we have now to improve those tensions? Well, this is for the leadership of, the, of these two countries uh, to decide. What I can say is that when there is so much tension between the two largest economies, then the innocent bystanders are being uh, hurt. Uh, we calculated the economic impact of the uh, tariffs U.S. imposed on China. For last year, this shrunk global growth by 0.4%. Oh, you underplay it. Come on. It's a working paper of the IMF, and basically we're shrinking a Japan and Germany out of the global system, right? Well, no, this is, this is a separate issue. I'm, I'm talking specifically about the tariffs. Okay. Um, the tariffs that, that have been uh, imposed, they reduce global GDP because the impact of uh, trade mm -hmm. restrictions, we know it from I, I'm history. Running, I'm running out of time. I've got to make some news. Are you suggesting that President Biden should eliminate or, or diminish the Trump tariffs? We think that uh, getting on a path of less 
fragmentation mm -hmm. in the world economy is good for everybody, including for middle class in the United States. Because when we impose more costs, they trickle down mm -hmm. and somebody pays. Who pays? It is, in the end, consumers here, right. consumers everywhere. So less fragmentation in the world economy means mm -hmm. higher standard of living for people well. everywhere. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk about it. Now Real we have estate. an economist who has a PhD. Wow. That's yeah. big. I'm not that's when you University make the, of Maryland. When you make the commitment for a PhD, that is a huge commitment i mean the masters i got my mba it was two years i spent half of it on the golf course but when you go to the, get a phd <laughs> you know that is a commitment uh it's Selma a little Hep. more rigorous than an mba it's a little bit say. more rigorous yeah, yeah. Selma Hep, chief economist at core Lodges, joins us here we want to talk about the housing market here so Selma, give us a sense here we've had these rates move up dramatically that didn't stop me from diving into the real estate market well and but then as critty pointed out We've had rates then move down dramatically. I mean, the 10-year was over 4%, like what, three weeks ago? And now we're at uh, 328, Selma. Is that like a concern? Um, <laughs> yes. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've been muddling through this transition in the housing market brought on by, by surge in mortgage rates. And, and, you know, we had a really miserable winter. Uh, home sales ended up uh, with a 30 to 40 percent lower activity uh, at the end of the year than, than at the end of 2021. But now mortgages have come down from the November peak, you know, and, and after peaking at 7 at percent, mortgages have been, you know, it, it, they even came down to 6 percent, went up to 6.5, <laughs> coming back down towards 6 percent. So, um, you know, lower mortgages have definitely helped the home sales activity, which has, which was really, really strong in the first couple of months of this year. And, and what we are seeing is that the buyers are very, very responsive to these low, lower mortgage rates. Um, and then as soon as mortgages start coming down, uh, buyers jump in. It, the only problem really at this point is inventory that continues to be extremely scarce. And, and you know, with the usual spring increase that we see uh, for spring home buying season is just not there this time around. Well, and also the question, you know, why are rates coming down so quickly? I mean, it's great to have lower mortgages. Obviously, more people can afford to buy a house. But if we're heading into a recession, um, that's got to concern you a little, right? If you look at the world interest rate probability uh, page on the Bloomberg terminal, which is how we calculate what markets are forecasting for the Fed, there was a 70% chance of a rate hike at the beginning of this week. Now it's only a 44% chance. Mm -hmm. So that means the market is really worried that the Fed is going to freak out and pause. 
Right, right, absolutely. I mean, and that's actually reflected in the mortgage rate spread. You know, it has, it's, we've had one of the most volatile years in terms of mortgage rate spread. And uh, we ended the year at 300 basis points over the 10-year treasury from 30-year fixed. Um, you know, this is almost double that, that, you know, the long-term average of about 170 basis points. It has come down, and now again over the last um, month or so, it has jumped back to close to 300 basis points. So, yes, mortgage rate volatility is huge. And, I mean, imagine how difficult it is for potential home buyers to plan in this environment because you don't know if you're going to pay 6% or if you're going to pay 7%. And for some folks, that matters a lot in terms of how much they can afford. Well, I'm going to refinance my mortgage I just got into. I'm going to say 12 to 18 months, and it's going to have a four handle on the front. That's my prediction. How about so you that? got a floating rate? Uh, well, we'll see about that. Yeah, we got some, we got some work going on there in, in the in the mortgage market. Selma, talk to us about the regionality of what's going on out there in the housing market. Is it as simple as everybody's moving down to the Sun Belt and that's good, and everybody's moving out of the the, the coastal cities? Is that kind of the story? Well, I, I don't know that it's as simple as that, but I mean, that's actually what the data is reflecting at this point. You know, it, it's very, the home price uh, changes are varying so so much across the, the, the U.S. On the West Coast, Mountain West, we've seen significant declines from last year's peaks, um, as much as 10, 10 to 14 percent, so double-digit declines. Um, on the East Coast, Southeast, uh, Texas, uh, New England, not as much. Home prices are down in very low single digits, uh, up to uh, down three percent. So there is huge uh, variation. But I think it's really, it, it it it's it's about affordability. You know, mortgage rates really took a huge chunk of the purchase budget for for buyers. So it's about affordability. It's about lack of inventory. Uh, the areas that are doing much better are areas that do have new construction activity where uh, builders have been able to compensate buyers for that surge in mortgage rates. So it's it's about more than just um, sunshine. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's uh, taxes. It's all that kind of good stuff. Uh, real quickly, um, 30 seconds, uh, Selma, what's your expectation for where mortgage rates are going to go? Well, I think we're going to continue to see volatility in mortgage rates. But I think, generally speaking, we're going to be uh, uh, driving, uh, the mortgage rates are going to be uh, coming lower. Um, you know, when you look at the consensus forecast, it's all over the place. I mean, it's, it's so uh, uncertain and wide-ranging. Um, I, I think, generally speaking, uh, we expect mortgage rates to come below 6% by the end of the year. Um, some expect still in, in this, that 6% handle, but, but I think we're going to be uh, uh, drifting lower to five and a half. All right, Selma, thank you so much. I, I'm, again, I'm holding out for something with a four handle on it, so see what you can do for me, Selma. Selma Hep, she's a chief economist at CoreLogic. Coming up in just wait, moments. Uh, wait, wait, hang on. Yeah. So I'm, I'm confused. Did, did you buy – I actually asked, are you – No, I have, rate a fixed, or, or, I have a fixed mortgage, but I'm going to refinance that bad boy. Um, oh, I see. Quickly. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Because okay. yeah, so. for a second, I suspected you just bought in cash, and then you're waiting to <laughs> no. mortgage that. No, I need that. I like the tax deduction. I didn't have that for a while. So. You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Know, cars for the American market designed and built more quickly now. Absolutely. This is a journey, Matt. So it will not be from one day to the next. It's not going to happen tomorrow. But I think by bringing digitalization, engineering combined with the design, it will increase the amount, the amount of uh, vehicles that we bring to the market and it will decrease the amount of time. Uh, this would not be possible if we would not have the support from Volkswagen in Germany. Yeah? I know that Oliver Bloom fully supports the strategy along with the board. Yeah? We have uh, Arno Anlitz and we have also the, the BDW brand CEO, Thomas Schaefer. So everybody's supporting this strategy that we need to get more responsibility for the design and the development of the vehicles here in the US. I was just down in Mexico and I saw down there some of the original bugs, <laughs> right? And my heart flutters a little bit. It's such an iconic <laughs> design. I grew up uh, partially in Germany. So for me, the Golf is almost synonymous with car, right? My mother has pined for a Volkswagen bus for the better part of my life, and I'm old. Um, 
are these iconic nameplates going to come back? I, I was worried when I heard the Gulf, this may be the last generation of the Gulf. Yeah, so going to your point, they will come back. I mean, we're going to maintain the DNA of the brand, the iconic products. For example, we are launching the ID Bus uh, in a couple of months here in the U.S. It will be a global launch. It will be in the beginning of June. And the launch of the product will be uh, available in 2024. So these type of vehicles, iconic vehicles, we will preserve the DNA of the brand going forward. There will be a next-gen Golf. We're going to still see a Golf in 2030. <laughs> We're going to maintain the DNA of the brand. Probably a Golf. I cannot guarantee you, but I guarantee you that the DNA of the brand of these iconic products will remain intact. So that means you, yes, have to buy your mother one. I think. It's, it's <laughs> she's like get, she's getting a bus. She's and getting then, a bus for sure. A bus. Okay, so she's getting that one. Um, so speaking of demand, what is your view on where the U.S. is right now in terms of uh, recessionary fears, et cetera? Yeah, so first of all, let me tell you that on the first quarter of this year, the market is growing 9%. So despite the recession fears, despite the inflation, and despite the interest rate, the market remains strong. And we have gained market share as VW over the last, over the last three, three months. So that's very positive. How strong? 9% market growth is, is very strong. I mean, and we, we grew almost 10%. So I think that, yeah, there's inflation pressure, there's interest rates, obviously, particularly on the lease when the consumers go to the dealer and they see that the lease has, you know, mm-hmm. almost double. It has an impact, but it has not slowed down the industry. Now, I think the Fed has made really good decisions on increasing the interest rate to keep the interest rate under control. I think this strategy will pay off by the year, the, the year end, 2023. And I would expect that the interest rate would start coming down slowly early next year. We've seen in the last couple of days a number of car makers put out news about their own finance arms, right? It's really important to have your own finance arm, especially in this kind of situation, yeah. high prices, rising rates. Um, how do you plan to finance your growth? So we do have finance a, your customers. So we do have a bank here in the U.S., a very uh, a solid bank. Uh, but again, it goes back to the product. Right? So let me give you an example of the ID4, which we started manufacturing in Chattanooga in the state of Tennessee last year. It's our first electric vehicle manufactured in the U.S. Today, for the first three months, we're number four in the rankings in the electric vehicles. Yeah? And then on top of that, we have a company called Electrify America, which are charging stations, you know, 300 charging stations, 3,500 superchargers. Yeah? We're going to double that in two years. And the most important thing is that 100% of that comes from renewable energy. Yeah? And then we give the buyer of the ID4 up to three years, 30-minute charge for free, included in the package of the vehicle, which starts around $39,000. So when you're a consumer and you look at the total picture, you know, an, an affordable ID4 with uh, free energy, renewable energy for the next three years, that, and you have some financing options, and on top of that, you have the IRA credit, that's a compelling package. Mm. All right. Pablo, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Matt. Also appreciate having you yes, here on set with me. Oh, uh, thank you for allowing me to oh, come and oh, join you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, Pablo Desi, uh, Volkswagen of America CEO and Bloomberg's Matt Miller. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's bring in uh, Herman Chen. He covers the regional banks for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he's been a busy, busy uh, analyst over the last several weeks here. So, uh, Herman, uh, I guess I'm just looking at Western Alliance. That was kind of the, one of the banks I have on my screen to keep a, a, an eye on is maybe a, a potential at-risk type of institution out there on the West Coast. It's up 5% today. I don't know what to make of it. What are we hearing from some of these banks, or are we just waiting for earnings to really get a sense of – how their balance sheets are, how their deposit levels are. Is that kind of where we are? Yeah, I heard the segment earlier in terms of Western Alliance and how they position themselves over the last couple of days in terms of their update and, and lack of the deposit disclosure. Uh, the the disclosure that they subsequently came out with yesterday afternoon uh, was actually pretty positive for, in the grand scheme of things. Um, deposits so down they, 11%. They okay, just uh, deposits. And and they finally gave that number. They didn't give that initial number in the in the Tuesday uh, update. So that was a big consternation for them. 
Um, 11% is pretty decent. Um, I think some of the analysts were expecting something that was worse than that. So I think that's why you're seeing a bit of a relief rally from Western Alliance. All right, if, if I'm a banker and I've got like Western in my name, mm-hmm. I'm going to, I've probably lost deposits. Or if right. I got some kind of Silicon Valley name in my name, I'm, I'm losing deposits. PacWest, Western yes. Alliance. Right. What do I do if I'm a banker? Do I literally get on the phone and call these people up and say, take your money back from J.P. Morgan Chase or Bank of America, wherever you put it, and bring it back because we're okay? Is that what I'm doing? Yeah, that's what you're doing. Uh, you're that's going, so weird. You're going that's to so see. Dude, that, listen, I... Uh, I'll give you a toaster. Although I'm perfectly happy with my bank, mm-hmm. um, full disclosure, Huntington, Huntington Bank. Um, they have obviously no branches here. Right. So it makes banking for me particularly difficult. Nonetheless... I have not changed my bank since I moved here from Ohio mm-hmm. like 30 years ago. Right. I'm more likely to change my wife <laughs> than my bank, right? I mean, it's just something people don't do. Right. She doesn't listen to radio. So um, uh, I just can't imagine that people would change their bank and then change back. Right. Unless, uh, I mean, I'm also maybe extraordinarily lazy and disorganized. But. You're a super loyal customer that I'm sure Huntington is, is glad to have you. Uh, but some of these other institutions, specifically technology and startup companies, have had this herd mentality where they don't want to operate within a regional bank structure because they view them as less safe. So you've seen them jettison their deposits over to a larger too-big-to-fail banks. It's... Unfortunate, but uh, the hope is that when things start to stabilize, and you've seen that a bit with SBB uh, being acquired by First Citizens and, and the signature deal with, with New York Community, it has quelled some of the concerns, and it, specifically within regional banks, that, that they are operating you know, as as expected. So the hope is that the, the, the concern sort of goes away, and then things can move back to normal and deposits can come back to the regionals. Yeah, because I think the... the- greater or wider economic concern is, hey, if regional bank A has lost deposits, that bank is less likely to lend to my new little store I want to open up on Main Street, and that could impact, you know, growth, economic growth, GDP in this in this country. I mean, when the banks report numbers, how do I get a gauge of whether that's happening, whether they're getting credit is, is a lot tougher than it used to be? Yeah, I... I think the analyst community will ask those questions and those the the management teams will talk about that in terms of their guidance for loan growth. The general expectation is that if funding costs and deposit costs are increasing because banks need to pay up to retain your deposits and and the the availability of funding with deposits declining is weakened, then banks should have less appetite to lend. And so a credit underwriting will, will be tougher for, for folks that are looking to borrow. So you're going to see higher in borrowing costs. You're going to see tougher underwriting standards. And that all can trickle through the economy and, and deliver some slower GDP growth, as you mentioned. So is that something that you'll see in the numbers, or that's just you're going to hear in the commentary from right. the companies? You're not going to see it quite in the numbers yet. You'll see potentially slowing loan growth, but more... F- in focus for us is the commentary and the guidance in terms of what uh, loans will look like it for the full year. And I'd expect those the guidance for that to come down. Generally, uh, loan growth mirrors GDP growth, so you could pro- potentially see that decline for, for at least the regionals because of all the funding issues that they're facing. When, when is the tide going to turn so that these banks can make money? Like net interest margin money, old school bank, banking money. Right. Uh, So what we're expecting is that it's going to be tough for them because margins are are tightening for for across the regional bank space. Funding costs are rising and your loan yields aren't going to go up as fast. So you need uh, the And competition to raise. They got to pay more to depositors. They got to pay more for depositors to keep them in the door. And what you need from a macro perspective is the Fed to cut rates so they can lower their deposit costs by, by cutting what they're paying out. So that, that's what can drive margin expansion going forward. I feel like that's going to be a sticky be a number, day. though, because, you know, now that investors, that depositors, I'm sorry, have gotten used to actually making money mm-hmm. um, by giving it to banks, 
and uh, they've gotten mobility, right? right? Now depositors are like, oh, I can move my money out of bank A and into bank B. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to be doing so with more frequency. Right. Um, so it's going to be hard for, for uh, banks to go back to getting you know, money for nothing. Uh, the good thing, at least from a bank perspective, is that you have a lot of price reactivity once interest rates do cut. So the the differential, you mentioned banks can see their deposits go to other places. We're focused on what's going on in the money market mutual fund complex, which is seeing very strong inflows over the past several weeks after the SVB fallouts. You know, the, the attractiveness of, of that sort of uh, asset class will diminish once we see some Fed rate cuts. So that differential should narrow, and that's only going to be positive for the banks. So, Herman, if I'm a regional bank investor, am I just buying banks in Texas and Florida and, I don't know, Nashville or something? Yeah, I think that's that's the right perspective. Folks that are in middle America and Ohio, like Huntington, it, aren't going to be affected by, by the fallout with, with SVB and Signature. These are all sort of coastal markets in, in California and New York. And so I'm sure a lot of the folks in, in Columbus probably haven't even heard of SVB. So that's actually yep. a good thing. And, and we'd expect more stability from some of the smaller banks that operate in, in the Midwest or the Southeast. Real quick. There are worldly people in Columbus, Ohio. Sure. You know? The Ohio State University. It's not like we're these provincial, you know, <laughs> we're not a town of farmers. We're pretty advanced. We're pretty advanced. We can play football. You can play football and you get some great. All right, Herman Chen, real quick, scale of 1 to 10, how was your experience at Penn State back in the day? Penn State was great. Go Lions. Uh, got a great football team. Going to be potentially in the playoffs next year. So really looking forward to the there season. There you go. We got a little Penn State plug in there. Herman Chen, uh, senior analyst. He covers the regional banks and fintech for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, proud graduate of uh, the Penn State University here. Looking at the markets here, kind of unched here. Not much. A little bit of red on the tape, but not a whole lot going on. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk ETFs again. I mean, again, just in my career, this is one of the most amazing growth stories that I've seen in my career, just the growth of ETFs, money coming out of mutual funds into ETFs, just extraordinary uh, when you think about uh, all the uh, funds flows into ETFs. We welcome Amanda Ribello. She's head of passive sales, U.S. onshore for DWS Group. Uh, Amanda, thanks for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You get a gold star today for showing up. Uh, that's more than we can say about most of our people here. Uh, but you guys recently announced the listing of X-Trackers MSCI USA Climate Action Equity ETF. Oh, boy. What is Ooh, that? Oh, that's a mouthful. That's a big one. <laughs> Tell us about this uh, ETF. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks very much for giving us the chance to do that. So um, it's tracking the MSCI USA Climate Action uh, Index. Um, and so what we're looking to do is, uh, with this product, invest in uh, US equities, which are on a strong trajectory towards minimizing or reducing their um, carbon emissions. Have there been any changes? I mean, MSCI recently said they're going to change the way they grade, mm -hmm. I guess, other uh, funds. Yeah. Are they making changes to their index as well? So um, as far as we know, they're not making changes to their indices. The data universe is always evolving for them. So as they kind of update all of their individual data points, and then this then feeds in when we have the index rebalances, which then get executed inside the funds. But um, great news, actually, I think, in terms of um, them further enhancing their ESG rating methodology for funds. I think this only helps investors more. Is ESG, I mean, it was such a huge draw for a while and then there has been backlash recently at least in the u.s um i'm not sure if it's backlash against esg specifically but against that as an investment uh uh product is it coming back i mean is it here to stay I think in the long run, it is here to say um, when we look at, you know, where markets are, I think maybe it's not at the forefront of um, investors mind like it was before. They're more concerned with generating returns, generating yield, uh, reducing volatility in their portfolio. Those things should be aligned, though, these, right? Yeah. And the thing is, actually, in reality, they are. So I think that what we're seeing more and more is that um, clients start to use, especially that governance piece in um, ESG for risk reduction, for drawdown reduction. Um, so it's good. It's funny because actually we were just talking about this. The due diligence sessions that we do with some of the largest investors globally, beforehand ESG would be like a little 10-minute segment in that kind of right. one-day um, agenda. And now it's intrinsic in pretty much all of the different um, segments. Yeah, I want to follow on what Matt was going, the path Matt was going down because, you know, here in the U.S. we have seen some pushback and I, and I, and I probed some of our European colleagues uh, that are based in our London office, and they say no. In Europe, it is the ESG push is as strong as ever, yep. and they and they particularly called out um, Finland, Sweden, you know, the Nordic countries. And I mm -hmm. see here in your launch, you had a big support from the fund in Finland. Talk to us about this uh, this ETF you launched and and the, and the investment by uh, this Finnish uh, firm. Yeah, sure. So um, we were working together with um, a very uh, good client of ours, um, Ilmarinen. It's in the public domain. And they are, um, you know, we've worked with them previously. Uh, we launched a fund for them four years ago. And um, with them and also with a number of the other large investors in Europe and also where the regulation is heading, everyone has become more kind of precise in terms of what ESG is going to mean for them. So then we further fine tune their exposure with this new product. I want to ask about your job. Okay. Um, the title, you're head of passive sales. Yes. And your parents must be like, do you don't not do anything? I just right? sit around. <laughs> <Yes>. Exactly. <laughs> um, but no, it, it, in a, it, to be more serious, active is getting so important, yeah. right? I mean, we talk about that on the ETF show all the time. The interest in active has just really climbed. Mm -hmm. um, can you take on that part of ETFs as well? Yeah, actually my job, my, first of all, my title's changed is now Extract of Sales, so I have more flexibility. All right, good on you. Yes. But secondly, um, yeah, you know, the beauty of the ETF wrapper is that it's providing transparency access. You know, you don't need to think about have, setting up an account with a transfer agent. You can just buy things on exchange, right, with an ETF. So, um, yeah, this trend, and we strongly believe it at DWS as well, that the mutual fund, sadly, is not as relevant as it used to be, but the ETF is Sadly, that's fantastic so. for you, right? I mean, I'm trying to think of everyone. <laughs> I wonder, we had a story on the Bloomberg today about assets going into, you know, mutual funds and ultra-short treasury mm -hmm. ETFs. Yes. I mean, I think Barclays. Um, expects one and a half trillion dollars of assets to go there in the next 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of flows are you seeing? And, uh, you know, is there any future for the mutual fund? I mean, I guess it still has a place in 401ks, but yes. everyone is turning to an ETF. Yeah, we do still think that there's a time and a place for that. Some clients don't need to pay, um, don't need to have the liquidity. They might have favorable share classes, for example, which are cheaper. So they don't need to pay for all of the benefits. Um, and then definitely from some tax consideration, wrapper consideration perspectives, it's still relevant. Um, but I think for those clients that, you know, want to be more tactical um, and also just, it's very, it's, it seems to be much easier as well to launch ETF. So we have way more exposures than you do on the mutual fund side. Um, choices provided there, but also as the markets are moving, when we think that we're in this kind of 
part of the cycle that we've not seen for around 15 years, right? That then um, what was needed in the last 15 years is not what's needed for the next 15 years necessarily. So I would imagine that even more ETFs get launched too. Um, and uh, we see in terms of trends, like a lot of um, searching for yields. So probably our most popular fund um, this year has been our HDEF product. It's international equity dividends. So um, international equities typically yield more than the S&P stocks um, kind of four, four and a half percent versus 1.52 percent. And then if you then look at a uh, dividend focused strategy on that asset class, then uh, that's even more juice around 5.2 percent. Mm. So what's your pipeline look like? I mean, you don't even have to imagine. You probably know if more ETFs are going to get launched. <laughs> well, we're uh, definitely going to. How does 23 look like? I mean, because 2022 was a huge year for yeah. bringing ETFs to market. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's even reasonable to expect to mm -hmm. match that again. Um, so we're going to be keeping busy this year, definitely. We're hoping to launch 10 new funds. Um, thematics is an area that we think is really important in the market. So I think, um, you know, it's you can look at sectors, but also maybe thematics are a better um, tool for tapping into broader mega trends. And I think especially where we are in the market at the moment, it's good at buying opportunities for those kinds of things. Um, additionally, as well, we have some strong active strategies on our um, DWS side, and so look to bring them into the ETF wrapper too. Um, also thinking as well about kind of shorter dated fixed income as well. Um, and then uh, I would say the last block of where we're building is going to be um, going further down um, the yield trend like for fixed income so breaking news here I know exactly <laughs> new stuff coming I mean there's so many ETFs out there for you guys at DWS what's kind of a a minimum size that you want to have I see like on this on this mm -hmm. one you just launched you had two billion come in on the first day which is just mm -hmm. monstrous but what's kind of a minimum if it's worth your time <laughs> no. So I think the intention is always to have a fund that by the end of 12 months is going to be a billion or more. Okay. Um, but depending on the um, on the exposure, it's not always easy to get that day one investment. Others are maybe more relevant trends for like a more retail kind of investor. And so you need to get like ticket by ticket by who, ticket. Who are your investors in your ETFs typically? Um, we're very lucky that we are basically doing business with everyone. So retail platforms, um, wirehouses, IBDs, RIAs, um, other asset managers, um, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. When yeah. is, when you, is, you have big institutional interest at DWS. When does right? this train end? I mean, how, it's been, how long has the ETF business been on this trajectory? And how long is it going to continue? Do you think? I, I think that's a great question to ask. I think we need to, we can't be complacent. So I think things that we start to think about as well at DWS is the ETFs did so well because they were a great way to invest in something quickly, right? Um, blockchain technology is also very interesting when you start to think about, for example, um, operational to aspects of the ledger and everything. Tokenization, tokenization of assets. Tokenization of assets and so on. So um, expect some things here from DWS. I mean, let me put the question this way. I have an ETF show right now. It's a weekly program at 1 p.m. On I'm Mondays. waiting for my invitation. You yes. are invited for <laughs> sure. But the th the thing is, should we make it? Uh, should we make it a full hour? Should we? Should we make it an everyday show mm -hmm. in the future? Is that going to be the case? I think the frequency will be important. Yeah, um, we see in terms more of the growth of the ETF of industry. Yeah, like, because you know? we see more and more types of investors using mm -hmm. them now as well. It's not just about the AUM; it's also about who's using them as well. I don't think I own an ETF. Are you sure you don't? I don't know. I'll have to check. Because you also dude. have probably fund managers working for you that use ETFs as part of their strategy. Right, it's it an important part of building your portfolio in a lot of cases. Right, I'll take a look. I got the app. I'll, I'll take a look and see what I got there. I got a lot of New Jersey municipals. <laughs> John Tucker over there. He's laughing no, his I want head a, off. I want a bond ETF. That's... I'm, in the market for that so you we can have get many. every kind yeah. rvnu infrastructure munis so cash backed munis there you go see amanda ribello thanks so much for joining us amanda ribello her title now is <laughs> head of x tracker sales us onshore head of x tracker sales onshore yeah us onshore oh us onshore at dws group Great and stuff. rvnu is the ticker she pointed out for you john that's the x trackers municipal infrastructure all right let's Re head revenue bond fund you're listening to the tape Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Some news coming out of Japan. Uh, the Bank of Japan Governor Kuroda 
Uh, he is stepping aside. Uh, it served two terms, 10 years in total. Uh, what does this mean for Japan? What does it mean for the global economy? Uh, to get a sense of that, we welcome Kathleen Hayes. She is the host of Bloomberg News. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, so she gets a gold star for showing up, not phoning it in. <laughs> Kathleen, so big changes for Japan. What does that mean for Japan? What does that mean for kind of the global market? Well, you know, the, the Bank of Japan is, there's, there's the big three of global central banks, and that's the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, and the Bank of Japan. And remember, uh, that's J Japan with 120 people, 120, 120 million people, mm -hmm. is still the third largest economy in the world, wow, okay? So, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's investors, you know, uh, send a lot of capital out of the country, they attract a lot of the cap capital in. Japan is, is quietly powerful on that stage. They have been through a long period of uh, Abenomics, which became Corodonomics. Abe, of course, the uh, one of the most long-serving, successful prime ministers in Japan's history, recently deceased, or I should say in the last year, and uh, Governor Kuroda, uh, two terms. He's the longest-serving uh, BOJ governor in their 140-year history. So we're, we're at a, a, you know, a crux. We're at a, a maybe not a turning point. And he's got the yield curve control, which is kind of the, uh, the main thing, I think, that markets maybe – people, participants that don't know as much about the Bank of Japan as you, but that's that's what they kind of grasp onto as the thing that could change, right? Well, they do. And remember, when uh, Kuroda Abe came back in office in 2012, in 2013, there was a, uh, he, he dragged in Kuroda or, got, you know, to stimulate the economy. The previous governor had been slow to do that, cautious. No, he wanted Kuroda to fire it up. So they did quantitative and qualitative easing. They said we're going to get to 2% inflation within as soon as we could, and then they said within two years. Fast forward, things went up and down, uh, and in it was 2016 when inflation had been rising, but mostly oil prices, and it started falling back again. That's where they came up. They had, they had an almost an all-night meeting on a four to five vote. They put in yield curve control, and that's when they, they tied the 10-year JGB to, to uh, zero and then and gave it a little bit of a range on both sides and over time they kind of had to you know pull that out but they bought trillions and trillions of yen to to keep their 10-year jgb anchored i was going to say does anybody else own jgbs besides the bank of japan well they own something like 90 percent of the 10-year jgbs and over 50 percent of all the outstanding that? government <laughs> bonds crazy. well hey uh it's 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 like what a quantitative easing by the fed and and the european central bank taken to like a whole other level has it worked well they're they're kind of at two percent plus inflation now but is it going to stay there but no but not because of that right having, well, having nothing to do the whole world is facing rising inflation i mean yeah they yeah. would have gotten there without doing anything very likely we'll no? never know for sure will we if they if they did True. absolutely nothing because they did they did get japan up to about consistently above zero okay not in deflation and you're right now a lot of the gain has been in commodity prices but right now they're almost at four percent they're starting to pull back a bit but no this is a big deal for the rest of the world because if the japanese have already started repatriating some of their bonds from overseas and if they continue to do that they this is going to be a major uh, upward pressure potentially on global bond yields. And right. they have, uh, sorry, okay. I, I just have a million questions. Oh, go, let it I'm rip. I love getting you in the studio because we hardly ever get to talk to you. Um, I wonder about how much treasuries do the Japanese own? They used to be a huge holder of U.S. debt, right? Well, yeah, and they still own a lot. And and I wonder about what happens if yield control, is Ueda going to go away from yield control? Is he going to do it slowly? Okay, or is he's, he going to take okay, it a long Ueda time? is the new Bank of Japan governor. Right. He's uh, was a, uh, at, at the Bank of Japan from 1998 to 2005. Uh, he, at the time, was uh, one of the few when they decided to cut rates when they shouldn't have who voted, or raise rates, I should say, voted against it. So here you've got this man, an academic over the years, knows everybody he's about 70 he's been around for a long time I, I think the bet right now is eventually he'll have to do something and they may start signaling that but they're not going to move right away so i mean what do people think of at the end of this 10-year career for Kuroda? did he do a good job did will you miss him you interviewed him a lot well uh, yeah i'm a fan um he uh will people miss him i think uh 
Or was he successful? Well, there, we had a poll. Okay. We had a poll. I think 56% said he w- w- was a success and 44% say no. And the people say no, it's, uh, it's your argument, okay, that, uh, well, you didn't, you, you, the yield curve control and all that didn't really get you sustainably there. But I would say, look, if he's leaving office with inflation at uh, coming down to about 3% year over year from 4% with the BOJ at this last uh outlook update on the economy and inflation saying well it's going to be 1.9 percent by the end of the year and then it's but you know that's two percent okay that's a rounding error you guys so he leaves office with two percent inflation the shunto the spring wage negotiations we do that every year uh came out on the stronger side not super strong but strong enough to give a sense well maybe there's there's uh a shift a shift in the country where the the companies are realizing they have to pay people more uh they're the the, the people are are uh, wanting to see all that they were, they're ready for a little more inflation right and that was his biggest one of his biggest uh obstacles was deflationary mindset Japanese don't want to pay more for anything. That's that's their culture. <laughs> Seriously, uh, but now that seems to have shifted too. It's the biggest problem though is getting out of it, getting out of yield curve control when you own so many bonds. How do you do that gracefully? And oh, and another big one more thing I forgot to throw in politics. They've got a big budget deficit. Ruling de- uh, Democratic Party. They're 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 a lot of old uh, Abenomics people. And they have a huge uh, budget. Two hundred sixty-four percent of GDP or wow. something like that. Two hundred sixty-four percent of GDP. <laughs> and so, not surprising, a lot of politicians. Hey, don't get away from yield curve control too quickly. We yeah. don't want our financing costs to go up. So that's another thing Governor Wade is going to have to face. But I think it's pretty much inevitable that there'll be gradual adjustments. They'll go from 0.5 on either side of zero, and they'll gradually widen that out to get a, a more, a, a kind of a um, gradual shift that the rest of the world financial markets can deal with. Can deal with. All right. Kathleen Hayes, great stuff. Thank you very much for coming in to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Kathleen Hayes, uh, host of Bloomberg News. Next time we'll do a longer. Latest. We yeah, should have Kathleen longer. on for like a half hour because I have a million, still have a million and, questions. And you guys, yeah. you guys make me think, my God. See, there it's we really go. challenging. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, Kathleen, thanks so much uh, for joining us here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.